Good morning, Daxa. Today we will be reading from James 5, 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. All right, that is the text for this morning, James 5. So if you haven't turned there yet, turn there in your Bibles. Um, my name is David Livingston. I'm one of the guys on staff. And my role at Doxa is actually kind of a cool one. I'm a church planting candidate. And so basically what that means is Doxa Church was a church plant two years ago, but actually has this desire not just to be a church in Madison, but actually to plant churches kind of all around Wisconsin, even all around America, and literally to the very ends of the earth. And so our job on staff is basically to to be here, to be like one of the people that gets to like help lead in Salt Company, help teach the Bible, but also with this kind of vision of eventually kind of branching out from here to plant a new church. So that's me. Um, let me tell you a little bit more about me as well. One of the things you should know about me, and if you know, if you spend much time with me in the winter, you'll know this. I, I love to snowboard. Um, really like to snowboard, okay? And I mean, I, I love it. I don't just like it, I love it, okay? To the point where I've had to like, you know, repent of it before, okay? <laughs> like, I really like snowboarding. And I've actually had an opportunity to ski in some pretty cool places. And one of the coolest places I've ever been able to ski before is in Lake Tahoe at Heavenly Mountain Resort, okay? Anyone been there? You guys have been there? Okay, yeah, it's a really cool place. Uh, I didn't kind of have like the cash or the ability to go there myself, but I had like one of my friends who like takes a two week trip out there every year. He was like our rich friend in our friend group, right? And so one year he was like, hey, come with us. And I kind of got like the golden ticket that year. He would take a friend every year. So I got to go with him and spend two weeks straight snowboarding in Lake Tahoe at Heavenly Mountain Resort. Now, real quick, if you don't care about snowboarding, you can tune out for like a minute, but I want to just explain to you what that trip was like, because it was amazing, okay? The snow in Lake Tahoe, if you've never been there, it is amazing. They say Utah has the best snow. No, it's Heavenly Lake Tahoe, okay? Every single night we were there, it snowed at least a foot or more. Every single night, we were there for two weeks. So at the very end of our trip, like you would sit on the chairlift and there were certain parts of the mountain that as the chairlift would go up, you had to lift your snowboard up onto the chairlift because the snow was going to touch the bottom of your board. So there's like 10, 20 feet of snow, okay? Like so much snow and it was amazing. And so the way you get up to Lake Tahoe is from a gondola line, okay? I promise this story's going somewhere, okay? But you get there by a gondola, okay? So it's kind of in the center of the village of Lake Tahoe there. And basically what you do is about 5 a.m., you wake up super early, you know, you maybe take some coffee and you grab your snowboard and you start walking over to this gondola because you want to get in line. And the reason you wanna get in line is because when you have a fresh snow day, like your number one goal as someone who loves skiing or snowboarding is to be like the first one down the mountain. Because it is a totally different experience when you are like the first person carving in fresh powder than when you show up at like 10 a.m. and the mountain is already ruined, okay? Totally different, amen? Amen, okay, thank you. So anyway, 
the gondola line. You show up, you wait in it for like an hour, an hour and a half, and when it starts to move, it moves really slowly, and there was this amazing thing that would happen every single morning, okay? So picture this, you're in the town center, there's a gondola, you're just waiting in line for it to open, trying to claim your spot. Right next to the line, there was a Cinnabon, okay? Cinnabon. 6 a.m. is right about the time where their warming ovens would kind of finish these delicious cinnamon rolls. And what they would do was this horrible thing. They would open up their doors to this line of people who've been trying to stake their claim in line for hours at this point. And they would put a fan right at the edge of the door and they would just start blowing the smells into the crowd. People would lose their minds, okay? Like genuinely be losing their minds. These warm, intoxicating crowd started to waft in the smell and I tried to waft into the crowd and I can't explain to you what it smelled like all I can say is it was the greatest thing I've ever smelled in my life like genuinely at 5 6 a.m. that smelled unbelievable and you could start to hear a groan like an audible groan come from the crowd because people were starting to have this existential crisis because they'd bought like a hundred fifty dollar lift ticket and they're trying to have like the greatest day of their life up on this mountain but there's this smell right and everyone knew in line, if you get out of line to go get a Cinnabon, there's no possible way you're getting back in line, right? Like you have just, nope, you go back to the end of the line. And so people would literally be giving themselves like willpower pep talks. And like, you think I'm joking, I'm not joking. Like one of the guys in front of me was like, don't do it, don't do it. Like, it's just a Cinnabon, you can get one later, don't do it. But one by one, people would get out of line and go get a Cinnabon and you'd watch them take this like walk of shame. They have like icing around their face, cinnamon, they're holding their ski gear, and they would like walk all the way back to the end of the line. At this point, it was like a mile long. You couldn't even see the end of it. And so the question is, why would anyone do this? And it's like a crazy picture, right? Because one of you, you're waiting for this freshly fallen snow on a mountain that the snow is so good, they literally call it heavenly, okay? <laughs> and you get lured away by something that you can get from any airport or mall in America, right? How does that happen? One thing is this amazing moment of your life, this lifetime memory, and the other is a cinnamon roll served from a chain store by a high schooler, okay? Why? Like, why would anyone make that trade? And, and many people made that trade, many people. It's because one requires you to be patient and the other doesn't. One is something that you actually have to wait for and suffer for, and the other is something that you can have right now. No one would ever make that trade if they're standing on top of the mountain with all their gear on, ready to like drop into the powder bowl, right? No one would ever do that if it was like, you can either do this or have the Cinnabon. No one would ever make that trade, but many people made that trade while they're standing in line, suffering, waiting. And if you go back and you actually read the church fathers, kind of the earliest kind of writers of, of the church, not the apostles, but just like the early leaders of the church, the first kind of pastors, one of the things they talked about more than anything else was patience. Patience. Actually, if you go back and kind of read just what, what was the church talking about at the very beginning, actually way more than evangelism, even more than caring for the poor, like the theme that kind of covers all of what they were trying to present to be the shepherds of God's people was this idea of being patient. 
the ability to suffer and endure something difficult and hard in the moment in order to gain something of great and inestimable value later. The thing of greater value, right, it's Jesus and his kingdom, and the thing of lesser value was the world. And you could have one of those things right now, like instantaneously, you could have it. But the other you could have in fullness later. But if you chose to have the world now, you couldn't also have Jesus and his kingdom later. These are mutually exclusive. Right, and the way the Bible presents it is that if you, if you fall in love with the world and you choose the world, you don't just go to the end of the line, but you actually forfeit your place in Jesus' kingdom entirely. And James, so he just says it like this in verse seven. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. He, he gives this illustration. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What I think is interesting about this cinnamon roll story, okay, is that it actually revealed something true about the people who got out of line, right? And it wasn't just that they were mentally weak, right? Now, maybe that was part of it. But more than that, what it, was, what it revealed was that they truly believed to be true about this place on the top of the hill, right? Where this gondola was going. And it wasn't just what you believed in your mind, but what it was what you loved with your heart. And for those who stepped out of line, they did so because they believed that what was coming, not right away, but soon, was not worth waiting for. It wasn't something that was worth orienting their lives towards, and so they made a trade. They said, take my lift ticket, give me the cinnamon roll, right? Take heavenly mountain, give me diabetes. I don't know if that actually happened. I, I, and you know what, okay? I'm just gonna be really honest. I did it twice, okay? I got out of line, <laughs> I got out of line two times on that two week trip, I'm not proud of it. I was the sad man walking to the end of the line with my snowboard here and a Cinnabon here and like icing around my lips, okay? I was that sad person. One day I even actually left my friend to do it. He was like, you're an idiot, don't do it. And I was like, I have to, okay? So I went, got the cinnamon roll and I met up with him later on the mountain and I was like, how was it? He was like, amazing. He's, how's your cinnamon roll? I was like, it's fine. So, James point, okay? Do you know why James is saying we need to be patient? Like, why is he saying that? And why is he saying we need to wait for the coming of the Lord? And he actually says that we need to strengthen our hearts. That's like in the Greek. It's not just establish, but it's strengthen our hearts. Why does he say this? Well, he says this because getting into line doesn't mean you're gonna stay in line. Getting into line doesn't mean that you will choose to stay in line, deciding to start to follow Jesus like taking these kind of first steps and like coming to church, reading the Bible, even kind of like choosing to follow him. It doesn't mean at some point your heart is not going to be tempted to fall in love with the world. And what James wants to do is he wants to lift our eyes. Like that's what he wants to do today in this text. He wants to lift our eyes about like off of what is immediately in front of us or immediately around us and he actually wants us to set them on this day that Jesus has told us about. And so I just want three things in this text. One, the day of the Lord, the judgment of the Lord, and the purposes of the Lord. And so he starts by talking about the day of the Lord, right? And he says, be patient, establish your heart, strengthen your hearts. Why? He says, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
Now at hand just literally means like, it is like right here, it is near, it is coming. It's not, it's not far away, it's imminent. And one of the things that you will see if you actually read to the New Testament is that the kingdom of God is described by theologians as like an already not yet kingdom. Okay, so the way like theologians will describe it, because they're like, the kingdom of God's kind of weird, because it's, it's already here, but it's also not yet here, right? We're like in church, and we like have a relationship with God, but we're kind of recognizing like, you know, we still have masks on, death has been defeated, but it's not over, and so there's this already not yet thing going on. And so it's already because the Bible tells us that Jesus has already won the battle. He's won the battle, he's won the war. And our salvation has actually already been paid for by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, right? Jesus cries out, it is finished. And so there's actually something final about that. Our new life has been secured by his resurrection and he actually put his Holy Spirit into us as Christians as like this down payment, not only to mark us as his people, but actually as this like guarantee that he will come back and finish what he started in us. And the kingdom of Jesus is here. Like it's here today, like right now. And we can look at the people around us and we can see that, right? We can look at our own lives and we can be like, God is doing a work in me and in the people around me that is amazing. And we can see that, we're part of it. This is the kingdom of God, it's here. We're part of it. But it's also not yet. Because all of us are waiting for Jesus to come back and finish what he started. Right, we're waiting for the day when evil will be defeated finally and forever. We're waiting for the day when our lives will no longer be marked by sin and death. We're waiting for the day when children will no longer die, right? Where marriages no longer fail, where pandemics don't close our schools and kill the woes that we love. We're actually waiting for the day where the king will return and do what he said he would do. Make everything wrong right and turn everything that is bad good. We're waiting for the day when the joining together of heaven and earth that kind of started in this manger in Bethlehem actually would begin to spread out into the entire rest of creation. And we're actually, it's so much not yet that the Apostle Paul says that if the resurrection isn't true, like if the part that isn't come yet, if that part never comes, and that's not true, Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, the Apostle Paul says that if that doesn't actually come to fruition and all his promises don't come true, then he says Christians are actually to be pitied more than all people. Right, some people, they talk about Christianity like this, they say, well, hey, you know, there's these promises out there, but what I have right now in Christianity, even if all of that wasn't true in the future, I'd still be a Christian today. The Apostle Paul would say, that is the dumbest thing ever. (laughs) He'd say, no, you shouldn't do that. Because if that's not true, then Christians are living this like really sad, pitiable existence. And you shouldn't put your faith and hope in there, you should just live like the rest of the world today. And so what James is trying to do is he's saying the reality of Christians' lives, it is this life of looking forward because the reality of the kingdom of God has not come in fullness yet. And so James is saying to us, he's saying to those of us right now who are like waiting, And sometimes it feels like you're spinning your wheels. He's saying, be patient for the coming of the Lord. Wait for it, be steadfast, be patient. And the question this morning for a lot of us is just this, are you patiently waiting for that day? Like are you in your life patiently waiting for this day or have our eyes started to wander to some of the things that the world is holding out for us as we're waiting? 
Maybe you're the person who's kind of started to watch a little more Fixer Upper, and, and you've like really started to set your eyes on this future home that you can build here in this world. Maybe your eyes have started to wander on towards your 401k and your retirement plan, and you're starting to kind of set your eyes on the kind of places and the kind of things that you're gonna be able to do once you reach that certain age. Maybe your eyes have started to wander to the faraway places of this world. Right, your eyes have started to kind of move towards like the forests and the mountains and the cultures that you can walk through and experience that are kind of yours to explore. Or maybe your eyes have started to wander to that, that boyfriend or that girlfriend who isn't a bad person, but they're just not helping you follow Jesus. And James is trying to refocus our eyes. He's saying, stop looking around. Stop getting distracted by that. But I want you to set your eyes on that day, that final day but he also wants to refocus your problems. Like the problems that you feel like, these are the problems in my life. Okay, look what he says in verse nine. He says this. He says, don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged, but behold, the judge is standing at the door. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged, but behold, the judge is standing at the door. He's saying not only is the coming of the Lord at hand, like it is, it is imminent, it is happening very soon, not only is he near, but he's saying it is as though he is standing at the door. So you're having this argument, like, you know, in your home and like right outside is like the judge. He's saying the day of the Lord is coming and it's a day of judgment. And that's the second thing he wants to talk about, the judgment of the Lord, because James wants to take our eyes off of the things of this world and put them onto the kingdom of God. But he also wants to take our eyes off of the small problems that like feel, fill our lives, but also just fill kind of our, our minds all the time. And he's trying to get us to remember like the one big problem that all of us actually have. And so he says, don't grumble against one another, right? You have complaints, you have judgments against one another. Someone maybe has wronged you maybe treated you poorly, maybe someone has actually offended you in like a pretty significant way and you feel like really wronged by that. These are like regular problems that we have and it seemed like a pretty big deal because after all, these people have wronged us, they've wronged you. And what James is saying is amazing. He's saying, let me change your perspective. As you're having this disagreement and as you're so concerned about bringing judgment against your neighbor, or against your brother or sister, you're kind of trying to show them their failures and their offenses and you're kind of bickering back and forth, fighting for your rights because you've been wronged. On the other side of the door stands your God, the judge of the universe. And it's like as you're having this conversation fighting for your rights because you have been so wronged, the one that you have spent your entire life wronging, the judge himself is like standing on the other side of the door and he can like hear your muffled argument. He's so close to you. And he's so close to opening the door. What James is saying is he's saying the problem that you have in your life, it's not that your spouse is unfair to you. The problem you have in your life is not that your friends talk about you behind your back or there's a lot of gossip in your community. It's not actually that you don't get the recognition of someone else who doesn't deserve it, that actually you deserve to be recognized for that. He's saying the problem that you have in your life is that the coming of the Lord is at hand. And the one who is now standing at the door, he is the judge. 
And the Bible tells us that on that final day when the Lord returns, the Bible actually says that there will be a day of great judgment. You know, Jesus himself tells us that we're actually gonna be judged based off of every single careless word we say. He says that all that is secret will be revealed. He says that everything that exists in your heart will be laid bare, not just before the judge, but before the entire universe. And we have this kind of idea, you know, because like, we've heard this idea of judge, we don't really like it so much, and so basically we kind of come to this conclusion in ourselves, we say, okay, well, what this really is talking about is that if there is a God, if there is a creator, what he really requires of us is just basically have our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, right? And so it's like, I know I've stolen some stuff, I know I've lied a little bit, but like I'm generally a pretty good person, and so we kind of have this idea that when we stand before the judge, that's basically what's gonna happen. Everything we've done is gonna be kind of laid out, and the question is gonna be, are we more good than bad? The Bible says that's not what happens at all. This is nothing like that. But actually, in, in Romans, we're told that what will be made clear in that day is this, is that none is righteous. And he even clarifies it. He says, no, not one. He says, no one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside, and together, kind of corporately, they have become worthless, useless. No one does good, not even one. And then later he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then even further he says that the wages of sin, the punishment for this failure, the wages of sin is death. And we don't like talking about the judgment of God, right? We, we kind of view that as something that's like old and archaic and we've kind of got rid of that, but Jesus talks about that all the time. It's actually like the one main thing that Jesus came to speak about was this final day. He talks about it more than any other kind of author or speaker in the whole Bible. It's not a peripheral thing for him. He's like, this is why I came, because that's real. That's true. And what James is doing is he's trying to get our eyes off of our petty problems that kind of fill our lives day to day, and he's trying to get us to look up at the reality of like this massive weight that is weighing down on our lives, and it is this reality that the Lord is going to return. And James is saying that he will return at any moment. His coming is at hand. And when he returns, he's not gonna come as a lamb this time, but he's actually gonna come as a lion, as the judge. And any and all that are not perfectly clean and fit for his kingdom, they will be separated, banished from it forever. That's not a myth. That's not like someone's idea or some like angry preacher's kind of like way to try to get you to fall into line. It's actually the story that Jesus told us as he was going to the cross. He just said, this is what's true about the universe, that that final day is coming. And the Bible tells us that there's only two paths forward on that day. One is to face judgment alone. One is to face judgment alone. You stand before the judge, just you. And you end up paying the cost for your rebellion against your creator. And the Bible says that those wages, what you have earned is death. If you wanna get even more technical about it, it'd be just complete separation from God. 
that the judgment on your life would not just be kind of this, this image of like brimstone and fire, but the reality is just it would be to be separated from God who is the source of all that is warm and good and bright in our world. And so the Bible just says it is like being cast off into complete darkness. That's one path. But the other path is to be someone who has covered themselves in the blood of Jesus. It's to be someone who's actually put their faith in his death on the cross on their behalf. It's to be someone who has forsaken the world and all that belongs to it so that they can take hold of and be joined to Christ. So that when you stand before the judge, actually what would happen in that moment is that the judge would get off of his bench and he would push you aside and he would stand in your place. And he would say, this one is mine. I have paid for his sins and his failure with my own body and my own blood. I have already been judged on his or her behalf. They're mine. And then instead of the judge saying, guilty, you are guilty, he would say, come and enter into my joy. And what James is saying is he's saying, be patient. Be patient, strengthen your hearts. Don't get caught up in these small kind of judgments of other people. Don't get caught up in the issues that plague everyone who's living for this world. Don't even get caught up in making these like large boisterous promises about your life, right? Or what you're gonna do. Just, if you say you're gonna do something, just do it. Let your yes be yes or your no be no. And he's saying all of this is tying it to this reality. He's saying, I want you to live your life looking forward to that day. He's saying, Christian, you're meant to let that day define everything about your life. Don't take your eyes off of it. Don't take your eyes off of him because he will either be your sacrifice and your redeemer or he will be your judge. And he's saying even now he's standing at the door. He's standing at the door. And he keeps going, he says, an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets, right? These, these kind of people that everyone who's you know, reading this, they've kind of grown up with the stories of the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And behold, he says, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so he's kind of pulling back and he's saying, hey, even in your history, you have so many examples to look to. Like, look at the prophets, right? And if you read Hebrews, the book that was right before James, it tells us what happened to the prophets. It says that they were like, you know, thrown in prison, they were killed, they were sawn in two, right? It's like, not a great life, okay? Like, they had it rough, it was horrible. And he's saying, look what they did. They were steadfast, immovable. The world was like, you can have the world. And they said, I would rather be sawn in two and have Jesus, And he's saying, we look at that and you'd look at their life and you'd say, what a tragedy. And he's saying, no, 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 you know the full story. You know that those are actually the blessed ones. And he looks at Job, right? This man who had so much wealth and all these things, a family, and then in like a day, everything was taken from him. And his story, it is hard, it is brutal. If you've read through Job, there's moments of darkness and depression, moments of even like real significant doubt. But through it all, Job like holds on to his faith in God. And he's saying, look at that steadfastness, right? And at the end of Job's story, God gives him more than he had in the beginning. But the point of all of it isn't to talk about the prophets, it's not to talk about Job. The point of all of it is it's through their steadfastness they actually revealed something about the heart of God for them. God's purpose for them. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
And this word purpose is really interesting, okay? It's this Greek word telos. Now, telos is a really interesting word because it means like the end goal. It's like the kind of like innate intention of something that it's striving for. So like the telos of a clock or like a wristwatch, right? What's the point of it? Like its purpose is to tell time. And he's saying that it's through the steadfastness of these people and the steadfastness of your life that actually what will be revealed is like the purpose of the Lord. And he's saying that the telos of the Lord, the end goal is compassion and mercy. Compassion and mercy. What he's saying is he's saying, if you wanna be the kind of person that stays in line, if you wanna be the kind of person that like keeps your eyes focused on this final day and you are waiting for Jesus, for his coming, if you want to be that kind of person, you don't need to just know that day is coming, you don't need to just know what that day is like, that it's gonna be a day of judgment, you need to actually know what the heart of the judge is. What is his heart like? What's his end goal, his purpose in all of it? And he says it's compassion and mercy. And whether you believe that is true or not will be one of the main things that will determine if you are patient enough, steadfast enough to keep your eyes looking forward and actually to keep putting one foot in front of the other. He's saying this is what the Lord's like. This is what he's like, he's compassionate, he's merciful. In the Old Testament, the main thing that you'll hear over and over again is that the Lord, he is slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. The Bible's saying that's who he is, that's what he's like. This is what the one is like who has promised to one day return. And what James is doing is he's just using these two words and they're really simple words, we don't even have time to get into them, but just compassion and mercy. Like those two words, you could go this whole week and you could just think about those two words and just meditate on those. What does it mean that he is compassionate? What does it mean that he is merciful? But what it means, what it means is that waiting for the Lord is worth it. It's worth it. This compassionate, merciful Savior is worth waiting a thousand lifetimes for. He is worth giving up everything in the world 10,000 times over. Because he's compassionate. He sees you in your brokenness and he doesn't just tell you how to get back to heaven but he comes from heaven down to earth so that he could be with you where you are in your brokenness. He identifies with you. He has mercy. He sees something that would be so good for you yet you don't deserve it and you can't get it yourself and so he comes down and he does it on your behalf. He stands before the judge himself and he is the one who is slaughtered so that you can be made whole and be given this. He's compassionate. He's merciful. And it isn't a free forgiveness and a free compassion that cost him nothing. His compassion and mercy for us cost him his life, his blood. And he's come to fix and heal all that is broken about our world. And he's come to fix and heal everything that is broken about you. And to give us not just a new life and not just to invite us into his perfect kingdom that's coming, but actually to give us himself. Himself. And so what James is saying is he's saying, be patient. Wait 
He's saying strengthen your heart because at the top of the mountain, the one you are looking for is also waiting for you. He's saying he loves you. He made you. He's saying he is what you have been looking for your entire life. C.S. Lewis has this quote about these kind of two realities, right? Like standing before the judge and either being like entered into his presence forever or the judgment on you being separation from him. And this is what Lewis says. He says, in some sense, as dark to intellect as it is unbearable to the feelings, we can be both banished from the presence of him who is present everywhere, and we can be erased from the knowledge of him who knows all. We can be left utterly and absolutely outside repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. On the other hand, we can be called in, welcomed, received, acknowledged. And he's saying we walk every day on the razor edge between these two incredible possibilities. And he just says, apparently then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door, which we have always seen from the outside, he says it's no mere kind of like neurotic fancy. It's not something you kind of made up in your mind, but he says it's actually the truest index of our real situation. And at last to be summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all of our merits and also the healing of that old ache. The whole Bible, is pointing forward to that day, the day of the Lord, where Jesus will not just come back, but he will make everything that is bad good in our world and in your life. And everything that is hard about your story, everything that is suffering in this moment, everything that makes it really hard to continue following him to that kingdom that is not here in fullness yet, all of that will be worth it. And so he says, be patient. He says, strengthen your heart. Like, let the reality that that is true and it is coming, strengthen your heart, but also be the kind of people that give yourself to strengthening it. Like, train yourself for godliness. Become the kind of person that, like, goes through, like, the spiritual calisthenics to, like, strengthen your heart so that when the world comes to you and says, step off the path, come enjoy this right now, you would say, no. I have a homecoming, my king is coming, and he's at hand. So James is saying, set your eyes, your heart on these promises. He's saying, do not waver, do not be distracted, because he is at the door. And any moment, it will open. And those who have stayed faithful, those who have been patient, those who have been steadfast, those with faith, When that door opens, they will finally be home. And it will be worth it. Let's pray. God, so often the journey of Christianity feels like standing still. God, and right now it feels that way. God, it just feels like we're kind of like in line and 
even with the pandemic and just everything going on, God, it just feels like we are like waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, God. And even just the reality of history is, God, we've been waiting for a long time. And God, it's really hard to wait because it feels like the longer we wait, the more things that are present and tangible and right next to us feel like they might be better. Maybe it's, maybe it's better to live my life for this, or maybe it's better to kind of have Jesus in my life but not have him be the main thing. And so, Father, we just hold open our hands and we just recognize that the reason that you tell us to be patient is because we are often very impatient. And the reason James kind of brings this to us is because he knows that it is not just possible, but it is guaranteed that we are going to be tempted to leave following you for something this world holds out to us. And so Jesus, we need your help. We wanna be steadfast. We wanna be patient. We wanna be the kind of people that so believe in who you are and what you've done. That so believe in the reality of your kingdom. That no matter what the world would hold out to us, how good it would smell or how much it would seem like it is going to taste amazing, whatever the world is holding out to us, we would just say, no, 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 no. You, someone else can go after that. I'm waiting because I've fallen in love with Jesus. He's my everything. And I would stand here for 10,000 lifetimes if it means seeing him in the end. Would you make us those kind of people? Would you help us worship you this morning? In your name.